Series. This past week, I had the opportunity to watch just a short YouTube clip from a popular uh, show. And the host is known for being a bit abrasive, controversial, but I was drawn to it because of the title that an atheist had supposedly become a Christian. So I'm interested in this. And right away, as the interview went on, as this, this new Christian was discussing about his life, he considered himself a mythbuster. He was a podcaster and he likes to look into myths and follow the evidence to, to the conclusion. And he brought up Christianity and right away the host pressed hard and he hit him with this question. He said, how can you know that a person who lived 2,000 years ago was actually the son of God? And right away, you can see the tone change. And this guy's like on his heels, right? And so he, he responds. He says, well, that's why I call myself a believer. And the response was, so you just believe? Well, I've seen what it does in my own life. And what has it done in your own life just because you believe? Well, it makes me a very happy person. Good things have been happening. And then he hit him again. He's pushing him into this corner. But how can you actually know that someone would be the son of of God? Or are we all just the Son of God? And this guy backed into a corner, has lost all kinds of ground, and responds, well, of course we're all God. We're 100% God. But, but, but Jesus was the teacher. And by this point, we have devolved into hot, smelly garbage. 1 Peter 3.15 says, to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that we have. When Jesus was pressed, when he was challenged, he gave a defense. This morning we're going to see four things happen in the story. Jesus is going to call to the stand his greatest witnesses. He is going to draw a contrast between himself and the religious leaders. He's actually going to appeal to them to believe for salvation. And then we're going to see a group of people that do believe. Last week, we left off at a really intense moment. Oh, Pastor Matt did so great last week. But we were left hanging. Jesus had just brought up his greatest witnesses. He says, look at the works that I've been doing. And then he hits them with his identity. In fact, they had just asked him. They said, tell us plainly. In fact, they had surrounded Jesus, as Pastor Matt talked about last week. And this is not like a, hey, let's get together, make a circle, and talk over some stuff. This is a threatening circle, like a hostile gang surrounding him. And they're pressing him, recant. We challenge you, who are you? Because if they can get him to say the wrong thing, if they can get him to say the wrong thing, they can kill him. And that's where we pick up this morning. It was on the last verse of where Pastor Matt left off. So you've turned your Bibles to John chapter 10. Let's pick up in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, in our Western culture, that may not seem so clear, but we can tell by their reaction that this is indisputable. They know exactly what Jesus is saying. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Everything got critical. His life is on the line right now. He is surrounded by men holding rocks. 
Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They picked up rocks. They're so outraged, or maybe even so satisfied, that they're pulling from this decree in Moses' law as an opportunity to kill him, because now they have everything they need. They can discredit him, they can silence him, and now they can erase him. They picked up stones. This is the fourth time in John's gospel that they're trying to kill him. And it's a unique word in the Greek for picked up. In fact, because they're on Solomon's porch, Solomon's colonnade, there aren't rocks lying around. Like there's not rocks lying around in the foyer out there. The word picked up means that they lifted up to carry. They brought rocks to the party. This was a premeditated execution. The situation is critical right now. And Jesus answers, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus, resting in his Father's sovereign timing, responds calmly and calculated. A circle of homicidal men brandishing rocks, and Jesus is like, this is a good teaching moment. He raises the question of his miraculous works, which he already brought up back in verse 25. These miracles offer concrete, indisputable proof of his identity. There's no box with mirrors that's making lame men jump, that's calming storms, that's sending demons running or opening blind guys' eyes. And this has happened publicly in front of everyone. Jesus puts these religious leaders on their heels. Why? Because when Jesus raises his indisputable signs, everyone with a rock in their hand looks foolish. In front of a crowd that has witnessed Jesus' miracles, experienced Jesus' miracles, and loved Jesus' miracles. So who are these men that are surrounding Jesus? This is important. These are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests. Many of them would have served on the Sanhedrin, which is the highest court in Israel. And they answer them. They're on their, he they're on their heels, but they answer him. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Their best rebuttal is to put on this performance of religious zeal. And they grab at this old decree from Leviticus. I'll read it to you. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall stone him. They've got him. They've got him out of technicality. You being a man, make yourself God. You know what's so profound? Is that they're exactly wrong. Because Jesus isn't a man making himself God. Jesus is the sovereign creator of all that is who humbled himself to make himself man. What a God we serve. Jesus is surrounded by religious rulers, the judges, and they're pressing him, recant or die. 
And notice, you need to catch this, he does not withdraw his claim to be God. But he is going to refute that he's blaspheming. And what we're about to see, and let's not get it confused, is not Jesus backpedaling. His, his tone is not raising. He's not getting defensive. In fact, Jesus is going to lean in and turn the tables and judge the judges. And he's taking the battle to their home court, the law. Let's look at Jesus' response in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law and it can't be broken? What a beautiful statement that Jesus is making that right here, Jesus himself said this is the inerrant authoritative word of God from Jesus' own lips. It can't be broken, refuted, disputed, left behind when it gets hard. From your law. Wait. That's in the Bible? You are gods? Are we Mormon now? This is confusing. Are we throwing away a few of the commandments? Now, what Jesus is doing is he's taking them back to Psalms. And he's taking them to Psalm 82. Turn your Bibles with me. We're going to Psalm 82. They would have known this psalm verbatim. This is not something new to them. What Jesus is doing is he is turning the lens of judgment from himself right back onto them. And he's leveling a charge against them from this psalm. Psalm 82, we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus is in their wheelhouse. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Who are these gods? The word here is Elohim. It's plural, gods. But Elohim also in the Old Testament is used as a title for God, creator God. Now, we can't get too stumbled up on this because by translation, when the translators look at it, it's actually very clear in the Hebrew. Whenever the word is set up as an intensive plural, it's the creator God's name. And when it's in the simple plural, it simply means mighty ones or gods. So what's happening with these gods? God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the mighty ones, the judges, the rulers, he holds judgment. These are God's representatives on earth. His ambassadors invested with his authority, with his word, to reveal his will and on his behalf. They stand in the shoes of God, sit in the seat of God, and speak the word of God. A great example is Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 6 and in chapter 7, God speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh. You're going to say everything that I say. I'm going to send you and I'm going to make you like God to Pharaoh. And Aaron will be your prophet. You will say everything that I say. Moses is standing as a representative of God with God's word. 
to Pharaoh. God actually uses the word Elohim in Exodus 22, 23, and Deuteronomy 1 as he is talking about the judges of Israel. And their role was to be his representatives, to make his judgments according to God's will and God's character. They're to defend the widows and the orphans, to be fair to the poor. They were never to be partial in their rulings, and they were never to accept bribes. So because they ruled according to God's standards, their judgments were God's judgments. So what's going on with these gods? God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of them, in these judges and rulers, he's holding judgment. How long, he says, how long will you judge unjustly? How long will you show partiality? You see, God, the highest judge, the highest ruler, is stepping into his courtroom, the highest courtroom in the universe. And don't miss this. He is pulling the judges themselves off of their judgment seats, and he is bringing them down and putting them in the defendant's seat. They are on trial before a holy, almighty judge. And what is his verdict? They're judging unjustly. They're showing partiality. And let's keep going. What should they be doing as reflecting God's character? They should be. Verse 3, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In my name, you've been abusing your positions. Representing my character, you have been unjust. And what is God's verdict? Let's look at verse 5. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. God's gavel is coming down and it's rattling the place. So currently, let's consider what's going on in chapter 10 of John with this in mind. Let's listen to the rebuke in Psalm 83, 82, verse 6. Let's keep going. One last verse in Psalm 82. So God has made his ruling. Now what does he say? Here's our key verse. Verse 6. Listen to the rebuke. I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. This isn't God deciding that other people are God's. This is God saying, you sat in my seat. You're representing me. I gave you the highest title. And look what you've done with it. Look how my character is being represented. I said you are gods, sons of the most high God, all of you. So with Psalm 82 in mind, let's revisit Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. Currently, they're standing around with rocks facing Jesus, and they're taking the role of judge, jury, and executioners right now. And Jesus, in a one-line callback, brings all of this to mind, and he's turning the table on them, raising a memory where judges were blind leaders, and they were called to answer to the highest judge. So Jesus is not backpedaling. He's cranking the heat, and he's putting them on trial. Verse 34, John chapter 10. 
Jesus answered them, it is, not, is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he, God, called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus brings up two qualifications here that give them the right to judge on behalf of God. And the first right here is you can see in verse 35 that they received God's word to whom the word of God came. They can judge on behalf of God because they have God's word, God's self-revelation, his expectations of man. And secondly, let's look in verse 36. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world? Now judges, rulers, magistrates, whenever they were sent to a certain city, tribe, nation, they would be consecrated they would be set apart to rule on God's behalf in that place. Jesus is bringing up Psalm 82 because he's drawing three sharp contrasts between himself and between those who are surrounding him right now. The first is that Jesus is different from them in judgment. These former leaders and the current leaders, they are unjust and complacent. Matthew 23, Jesus calls them blind guides. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 82, they walk in darkness. In Luke 20, Jesus accuses them of devouring widows' houses. They are unjust. But when Jesus speaks of himself in John 5, he says, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will. Unlike you guys who seek your will, I don't seek my will. I'm seeking the will of him who sent me. I'm perfectly representing the Father. So Jesus is different from them in judgment. He's different from them in identity. Because he wasn't given the word. He was the word. He wasn't set apart to judge a city. He was sent to judge the world. They are neither gods nor sons of God. And yet Jesus is God and he is the son of the most high. He and the father are one. So Jesus is right now looking at the shepherds of Israel who are corrupt to the core while he is the good shepherd leading through self-sacrificing love. Jesus is exposing the infinite disparity between them and himself. If these un unjust men hold the title God, how much more does he hold all the, the worthiness and honor of God? What's the greater blasphemy? What is the greater blasphemy? That the rulers who represent God's character are evil? Or that a man sent by God, doing the works of God, as the word of God, takes the title of God. But there's one more way that Jesus is different. And we're going to have to go back to Psalm 82. Jesus is different from them in fate. What is God's sentence of these corrupt rulers? Let's go back to Psalm 82. Let's pick back up in verse 6. I said you are gods, 
sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. You may hold the title gods, but you are mortal. You'll die, and you'll be as forgotten as anyone who's gone before you. The title of God that they hold is they are infinitely unworthy of. And the greatest proof that they're unworthy of such a title is their death. But Jesus will have a very different fate. You see, this moment right here, as Pastor Matt mentioned last week, is a turning point in the Gospel of John. Because right now is the hinge, and then he's going to make a huge declaration saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Then he's going to go to a grave where a guy is stinking, rotting inside, and he's going to speak and call out Lazarus and show that he can give life to another. And finally, his greatest sign is that he himself will be crucified by the Romans who don't get this wrong, and he'll walk out of the grave showing once and for all that he is the God of life. The same God that breathed life into man is the same God that resurrects himself from the grave. And it all begins with this very subtle callback to Psalm 82, contrasting the fate of the judges with the fate of God. But then Jesus' tone changes. It's so beautiful. Let's pick up in verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. If you don't believe what I'm saying, if you don't believe me, believe the works. If my actions don't line up with the character of what the Father has revealed about himself, disregard me. Start throwing rocks. But you have to hear his heart. He's appealing to them. They just told him, tell us plainly. So he does. And he tells them plainly so that they might believe and be saved. Like, do you, do you get that? These are the men about to kill him. He could so easily have written them off. These are unreachable. These are the hopeless. These are the ones that don't deserve grace. And he is appealing to them. If you don't believe what I'm saying, at least look at what your eyes see. Look at the overwhelming evidence. Think with me. Think logically. Look at what's plain. Believe. Believe. That the Father is in me and that I'm in the Father. He's reaching out to even his enemies. Notice that Jesus isn't demanding blind faith. Our poor backpedaling podcaster had to get backed into, well, I guess that's why I'm a believer. But Jesus isn't demanding blind faith. His works are his credentials. No other power in the universe could do what he has done. Believe your own eyes. There's no reason left 
not to believe. And Jesus is reaching out because, as Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. There is hope for every enemy of Christ. No, Jesus hasn't backpedaled an inch. He's called an undeniable witness. He's drawn a scathing contrast between himself and them. And then he's even appealed to them for their salvation. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Every counterfeiter's greatest fear is that someone would hold up a genuine bill next to their fake one. And again and again and again, Jesus has proven himself authentic. And again, these religious leaders have shown their hypocrisy. These leaders are without excuse. And instead of receiving him, they hardened their hearts. Now they intend to haul him out of the temple and stone him. And it's kind of fun. John offers us like this downplayed miracle. Remember, he's surrounded and he just leaves. So cool. It's so important that we realize that Jesus had no fear of death. He will lay down his life and die. But it will be when and how and where it's appropriate to the Father. But what's so cool is that it wasn't his time yet because as we're going to see, Jesus has one last stop on his itinerary. Let's keep reading. Verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Jesus is ending his ministry at the very place that his ministry began, where John baptized him. And God spoke verbally Jesus' identity. This is my son. I'm so pleased with him. He's awesome, everyone. Look. That's my kid. Jesus' ministry is ending where it started. Jesus is going to spend three months ministering to this little community on the other side of the Jordan. And it's going to be here that is his last stop before he returns to Judea for the last time before the week of his death. And many came to him saying, John didn't do a sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Our author John, not John the Baptist, but the author John, He's using the literary device of contrasts. He's now contrasted the shepherds of Israel with the good shepherd, and now he's contrasting those who are not his sheep with those who are his sheep. And many believed him there. This community believed that John was from God even without seeing sensational signs. I think we need to be careful chasing sensational signs. They recognized truth. These simple outside of Jerusalem, people that are outside of the lofty religious facade, they discerned truth. The signs are secondary to why they believe. They supplement the truth they already believed from John about who Jesus was. The work that was done in their hearts wasn't by the operation of shocking external works. They knew what they heard was true because God had done a work from the inside. And Jesus isn't hiding on the other side of the Jordan. He's on mission. There is a roster 
of his sheep that he needed to reach first. There's some application here that I don't want to miss. John had primed this community with his faithfulness to the Lord. And his ministry was cut short brutally. But the seed didn't die with the ambassador. Like, that's so key for us. Our, our role, like John, is to point to Jesus. And that's it. That's it. That's all he did. He was a smelly, weird guy. But he just pointed to Jesus faithfully again and again. Our role is to point to Jesus. And two, we can rest that God is going to do his work whether we're able to continue or not. Faithfulness to Christ today does make a difference. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for the person on the other side of the cash register. Be praying for the lost. Because God's not done. God is still pursuing his enemies. Let's be faithful to pray for our kids, for our parents, for our siblings, for our friends, for our enemies. You don't get to write somebody off because they don't like you. God may be reaching out to the very person that we don't like to be around. Oh, that we would be faithful in prayer and point to Jesus at every opportunity. There's going to be people in heaven that are going to say, Jesus came for us before he went to the cross. He came for me. He spent his last months in my community. Jesus is the kind of God that crosses the Sea of Galilee for one demon-possessed guy. He's the kind of God that takes the taboo road for one promiscuous woman. He's the kind of God that drops in on a tax collector's house who dropped out of a tree. He's the God and the shepherd that goes after the one. Let us never write people off, but keep praying faithfully. Our key verse this morning is chapter 10, verse 38. If you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And I'd like to give you the same challenge. You don't have to stand on blind faith. We can stand on something that is plain. We have compelling proof. What is the greatest sign that Jesus was the Son of God? How can we know that he was the Son of God? He raised from the grave. Is this a work that we can look to? Is it a work that we can point to? Do we have more than blind faith? Now look, I'm not an expert, but I do want to offer some evidences that we can stand comfortably on the resurrection. I believe Pastor Ben has brought up all of these in different sermons. But I'm going to give them back to you this morning. Concerning Jesus' death, no one can say nothing happened. It's, it's not intellectually honest. No serious historian will say that the man Jesus Christ never lived and died. We have at least 10 outside of the Bible sources that say this guy named Jesus lived and died on a Roman cross. That's really not up for dispute. But can we prove his resurrection from the supposed eyewitnesses who wrote about seeing him alive? Well, we know there was the 11 disciples, a handful of women, and at least 500 other witnesses that testified that they saw him, 
spoke with him, ate with him, even touched the holes in his hands. And then conveniently, a few of them wrote about it for us. Now, some people might say, well, honestly, I would like a written source from outside of the Bible that says they saw Jesus alive. I I want you to see kind of how silly that is. Let's say this morning in my preaching, I fell down the steps, right? And some of you thought this was funny enough to journal about. You know, tonight you're sitting ready for bed and you write, Dear Diary, February 26, 2023, weird sermon, preacher fell off the stage. And then one of you inexplicably decides that you're going to gather up those handful of journal entries and put them between two covers, right? And like a year from now, you're like telling the story. This crazy guy fell off the stage, never believed it. And the person says, eh, that's too far-fetched. Who would fall off the stage? I don't believe you. And you're like, look, here's, here's five people that said they saw it and wrote about it. And listen, what if that person said to you, you know what, I don't believe those because they're, you know, in one book, but I would believe it if someone wrote about it that wasn't in the sanctuary that morning. So you would prefer an uncredible witness. We're not on logical terms anymore here. The burden of proof actually lays on the critic to produce an alternative theory of what happened after Jesus died. And they have to come up with evidence that it wasn't a resurrection. So there's a few alternative theories out there. There's a theory that the disciples made up a fable so they could teach moralism and spiritualism, but they never expected us to take it seriously that it actually happened. There's the, the myth that everyone had this like simultaneous hallucination. That's weird. I don't think it happens. And then there's another one that they believe that Jesus just passed out from blood loss. That's like the silliest one. Like, They wouldn't have worshipped him. They would have rushed him to a doctor. You know, like, it's ridiculous. But I think the one that gets the most traction is probably the idea that this was a conspiracy. The disciples stole his body, and they spread the lie that he had raised from the grave to invent Christianity. Now, the book that I was pulling these from has eight reasons, but I'll give you four of them that this is ridiculous. And the first is that the Jewish leaders never produced a corpse. The disciples proclaimed the resurrection in the face of their enemies, in the city of Jesus' death, publicly to the people that watched him die. The high priests had Roman guards at their bidding. They could have tasked them to go to every house and search every cave, but instead they bribed them. Had this been a conspiracy, it would have been so easily uncovered by those who hated Jesus most. Two, there is no earthly motive for this. What was the benefit of lying? Their testimony brought them pain, rejection, loss, and death. Number three, only one of those who saw him alive, 11 disciples, handful of women, 500 people, only one had to buckle under torture and the threat of death and say that they had been lying. And the whole thing, Jesus, who's that? It would have been totally unraveled. And four, this is the fun one, the disciples underwent drastic character changes overnight. They went from running away to standing boldly. They went from despair to hope, from cowards to martyrs. Why? Because the truth 
that the apostles, the religious leaders, the 500 other people couldn't deny was an empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus. Something happened. And that something was an atomic cause. Its effects rocked the world. It changed cultures. It it propelled the greatest displays of love history had ever seen. No other ruler, no government, no scientific breakthrough, no religion has ever had the effect that Jesus had because something happened. Something that was more significant than their own lives. James, not the apostle, but the half-brother of Jesus. James never believed in Jesus during Jesus' ministry. But later, when Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles are going out on missionary journeys, planting churches, James stayed behind in Jerusalem to pastor the church in Jerusalem and be a home base for the rest of the apostles. In fact, James became known as a pillar of the church because he pastored through one of the most difficult times in history. They had a severe famine. They had terrible poverty and the most crushing persecution. And James was steadfast. In 62 AD, James angered the scribes and the Pharisees with his teachings. So they drug him to the pinnacle of the temple, like the roof of the temple, and they're like looking off the roof, right? And the crowds are gathering, and they tell him, recant Jesus or die. And he looks down at the crowds and starts preaching to them that Christ is resurrected. So they get so angry, they shove him off the roof. And when he doesn't die, they go down and stone him. And when he still doesn't die, they bash his brains out with a club to the crowds that just heard Jesus preached. What caused such a drastic shift in James? What fortified him against brutality? What compelled him to preach Christ to those who were about to witness his death? He had seen the resurrected Christ. So when we're pressed with the question, how can you prove that someone is the son of God? We don't have to be like the poor backpedaling guy. We can be prepared to make a defense. He failed to give the clearest evidence in history. Jesus raised from the dead. If you don't believe this morning what Jesus said, look at his works. Because if he raised from the dead, then he is God. And if he is God, there are serious implications. And those implications should drive us to repentance and making him the very master of our lives. What have we seen this morning? Recap. Jesus' assertion to be one with the Father was a clear claim to be God. His supernatural works were his witnesses. When accused of blasphemy, he exposed the corruption of the leaders. Out of mercy, Jesus appealed to his enemies for their salvation. They rejected both his identity and the works because they were not his sheep. Before his death, the good shepherd reached a community of his sheep across the Jordan. And the greatest sign that Jesus could perform was the miracle that sealed our salvation. He raised from the dead. I've got two challenges for you this morning. The first is that you fortify your defense of the gospel. If you want to look into evidence for the resurrection of Christ, and there's much more that I mentioned right now, an accessible book is called The Case for the Resurrection by Lee Strobel. And a much thicker, much lawyer-sounding book is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. 
And the second challenge I have for you is don't stop praying for the lost. Don't stop pointing to Jesus. Let's be faithful because God will not let our faithfulness go to waste.